If you have your Bibles, you turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our Masterclass series. And we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and we call it Masterclass because this is literally Jesus teaching the disciples and people how to live out the kingdom on earth. And so it's his greatest teaching, no matter if you're a Christian or not, philosophers or philosophical schools will teach this Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest philosophical teachings ever given. It's taught by Jesus. And today we unpack this and to kind of build the context, there's a story all throughout the, the Old Testament of the story of King David. King David, if you grew up in, in Sunday school, you know King David as the one who took the few stones and slung them at Goliath and slayed this giant. But he also became king. And he was a great king. He, he brought back the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. Many of the Psalms written by David, even in the New Testament, they call Jesus the son of David. David is one of the high watermark figures in the entire Bible. Yet, he has this moment where he has a complete moral failure. David, this man after God's own heart, sees a, a woman off the rooftop, sees her bathing, and he begins to lust after her, want her, he pursues her, and he has an affair with her. And through that, there's a child born, the child is lost uh, it's stillborn, and, and he goes to this trauma, and, and finally the prophet Nathan comes to him and brings his sin to the surface. And so when you go through this story of David, this high watermark figure in the Bible, how can somebody who has the heart of God, a man after God's own heart, stumble and fall to one of the lowest places a man could possibly go? And, and the answer is that lust is one of the most powerful tools that the enemy uses to take down some of the greatest men and women in the kingdom of God. Like you, if you just look, you think about Jimmy Swaggart, whatever you think about Jimmy Swaggart, I, I don't personally know what I think about Jimmy, but I know that Jimmy Swaggart, when he was at the pinnacle of his ministry, he was funding almost millions upon millions of dollars a month in South America and Central America to advance the gospel. The day he had his moral failure, that money dried up. I sat with pastors in El Salvador that told me the moment Jimmy fell, the next day the funding stopped and Christian orphanages and schools were shut down for good. This man who was at the peak of ministry, who was an influencer to presidents and Congress of this high standard, he falls because of lust. And you could go through a list. There's name after name after name after name after name. And it's lust has this power that the enemy uses to draw people from falling in love with Jesus to falling in love with the opposite sex. And it happens that Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 5. And, and I, I wonder, as we, we talk about this, if maybe it's not King David, but maybe it's us. In our sexualized culture, that porn is so huge in devastating, not just older people, but younger people. And maybe for you, maybe it's not walking off the, the balcony and seeing somebody bathing next door, but maybe for you it was finding a magazine at your friend's house or your dad's magazine stash. Or maybe it was turning on the TV and a channel that you didn't know was on there popped up. Or maybe it was somebody that you were on a date with in high school and you thought you liked them and the date went too far, too fast. Or maybe it was worst case scenario that you were young and somebody took advantage of you sexually as you were a child. Those things cause these inner wounds that lust fuels to try to deteriorate the soul of God's people. 
And the reason those things are so vital is because visual images burn into our souls. Like even just mentally, the, the visual stimulus reaches our mind faster than any other stimulus. And what makes it more dangerous is it takes less than a quarter of a second for you to see something in your brain to process it, but not just process it, but as you process it, it burns this image on your mind. That's why when you close your eyes, you can still see things from the past. And when it comes to things that are they're sexual in nature, the enemy uses those images and burns them upon our souls and our minds to then control us the rest of the days of our lives. And in this Scripture in Matthew, it happens that Jesus begins to talk about lust. And I think what the problem now today is this, though. In generations past, if you wanted to, to pursue pornography or lust, you had to go find it. But today, you don't have to find it. It's looking for you. You don't have to go to the rooftop. The rooftop comes into your house. You don't have to go to the rooftop. The rooftop comes to your phone. You don't have to go to the rooftop, it comes into your time. There's actually algorithms designed to fuel your life with lust. There's billions of dollars spent to bring pornographic images, to bring lust into your eyesight every single day. If you don't believe me, if you're a man and you change your gender on Instagram to female, almost all solicitation for lustful images will stop immediately. But once it says male, it automatically kicks in algorithms to fuel your timeline and the discovery section with pornographic images over and over and over again. Like it is coming after us. Here's some statistics. 64% of Christian men have viewed adult content in the last month. Not the world, but Christian men. 15% of Christian women have viewed content, and that number is increasing every year they do the survey. And then 74% of men 18 to 30 have viewed adult content that are Christian in the last month. That, that, that's Christian numbers. What that tells me is when David stepped on the rooftop, now the rooftop is being seen 74% of the time by young Christian men. It gets worse. Here's numbers for, for children under the age of 18. 40% of boys in grades 4 through 11 have admitted to searching for pornographic images. This is going to kill you if you'll throw that slide up for that number 11. Number 11, that is the average age for a child to view porn. Not 13, not 15, not 16, not 17, not 11 years old. Kids who should be watching cartoons, kids that should be outside playing, kids, and the enemy is trying to get them earlier and earlier and earlier. 93% of boys and 63% of girls have seen explicit content before they turn 18, but only one in four will actually tell their parents they actually saw it. So they're seeing it, they just don't tell mom and dad that they see it. Only 3% of boys and 17% of girls under the age of 18 have not been exposed to adult content. And the Crimes Against Children Research Center says about one in five teenagers have received sexual solicitation via the web and social media. That means not only are they seeing it, but people are trying to approach them to act it out through social media and websites. 
And only 25% of the youth that have actually encountered these sexual approaches tell their parents about it. It is an epidemic of epidemics. An epidemic of epidemics. And it is not a new thing. It's just an old thing wrapped up in a more aggressive, progressive technology to make it happen worse. And if, and if we're going to be the people God has called us to be, we have to view our sexuality through the lens that Jesus gives us, not the lens the world gives us. But we also have to process how the world is trying to desensitize us to the things of the world to become more sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the things of the Spirit so we can be spiritual people, not worldly people. And so this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Hell. Like this is a dramatic mentioning of Jesus. He's taken a, a Ten Commandment of thou shalt not commit adultery and he takes it to a greater level. He says, you've heard it said, just don't commit adultery. I'm telling you that it's not just about what you do, it's about who you are inside. See, there's a thing called situational ethics. It came out in the, in the 80s because in the 80s we started trying to change everything to fit our situations. And situational ethics says this, there is no black and white. Based off the situation, your ethics can change. And the Pharisees were using these situational ethics to live their life however they wanted to as long as they didn't break exactly the commandment. And so Jesus is counter-reacting that was saying, okay, well, just because you don't go all the way with the other woman, it's still adultery because in your heart you wish you could have. And he takes it a level deeper and then he says, it's so serious, I would rather you take out your eye and cut off your arm if it causes you to sin than to go to hell. So for the, for the people that are, are extremely liberal and they think Jesus didn't talk about hell, twice in his first sermon he's already talked about hell. And he says it's so serious that if he calls you to sin, cut off your right arm and your right eye. Now, the reason that's important was in the Greco-Roman culture, your right hand and your right eye were more important than your left. Because if you went to battle, most people were right-handed and they fought with a sword with their right hand. They had to be able to see the enemy with their right eye. So he's saying, I'd rather you be completely vulnerable in this life than to face judgment in the next. Like, like he took it seriously. And so I think the point Jesus was trying to make is this, that followers of Jesus are called to pursue sexual purity, both inwardly and outwardly. When you we think about sexual purity, so many times we think about it as being you know, the purity culture, you know, don't, just don't have sex till you get married. Once you, once you get married, then it's fine. No, Jesus said, no, no, it's not just about what you do. It's about being pure. It's being different than the world. It's being in tune with me. It's about being innocent as doves. It's about being pure and sexually pure and loving the God who gave you these things. And God created sex. And so God can regulate sex. And God doesn't regulate sex to rob us. God regulates sex to bless us. Because sex under the covenant of God 
is one of the greatest blessings that you'll see. It's how we produce children. It's how we share intimacy with our spouse. It's how we grow closer with our spouse. And so under the covenant of love and of God, it's this amazing gift that God has given us to experience life with one another and to reproduce life with one another. But outside of that covenant, sex is full of pain, shame, trauma, and abuse. And God loves us so much that he tells us, listen, this is a gift when it's within the confines of my way. But it's a curse when it's outside of those confines. And we live in a culture where they want it all outside of God's confines. And God says, no, no, this is a gift that I want to give you. And he's saying sexual purity begins with our eyes before it ever gets to our bodies. And if we're going to be the sexually pure people that God has called us to be, that live lives that reflect his image, reflect his glory, reflect his love, reflect his innocence, reflect his purity, then we have to start with our eyes, not just the bodies. And, and, and so with porn, porn promises fulfillment but leaves people broken and empty. It's this false oasis of love. It's this false oasis of love. It's this false oasis of fulfillment. It's this false oasis of intimacy. And so it promises fulfillment, but it leaves us broken and empty. And one thing, viewing pornography rewires the brain. They've researched it and studied it. It rewires the brain. It triggers dopamine increases in the brain's reward center. So when it triggers it, it makes your body say you need it again. But they've also realized that once it begins rewiring your brain and the chemical levels, it turns you back into a juvenile delinquent. It actually rewires male adult brains back to teenage states. And the reason for that is it becomes an addictive narcotic. As it increases dopamine, you become addicted to it, and then it begins to desensitize you to it, and you start acting like a teenager again. That's why many marriages are broken and distorted is because you have a woman and then you have a teenager. Viewing pornography also kills intimacy and destroys relationships because it fuels self-gratification and objectifying the opposite sex. And one of the saddest things that I've seen in church world living through this and watching this happen to numerous families and numerous people, like we all know people that deal with this. One of the saddest things is something that people think they do in isolation actually causes devastation to the people they love. They begin to objectify their spouse and expects their spouse to fulfill the needs they're seeing from visual images that their spouse cannot reproduce. It's making them selfish lovers instead of selfless lovers. It breaks trust, it brings betrayal, it, breaks, it builds up insecurities, it builds walls, and it builds all these, all these things. And marriage is hard enough as it is, but when you start trying to bring betrayal and distrust and insecurity into it through, through pornographic images, it makes it ten times harder. But then also, viewing pornographic images corrupts the soul. Lust and pornography keeps us hiding in the darkness of sin instead of getting exposed into the light where Jesus can finally heal us. And the sad thing about it is this, and I, I say this, I know this is a tough topic, but I, I say this with the most compassion and grace I could ever say, that I personally believe that most people that deal with sexual sin, whether it's homosexuality, fornication, pornography, adultery, whatever it may be, 
I think it all stems from a place of brokenness from sexual trauma. Now, we talk about the, the visual side of it, but I think the, the soul side of it is this. There is a whole lot of people that carry sexual trauma from things they saw or experienced as children or teenagers that instead of it getting healed by Jesus, they suppress it, and when they suppress it, the enemy uses it as roots to produce things that should never be produced from it. And as we talk about this, at the end, we're going to share some resources to help you. And it has resources for sexual trauma, sexual abuse, everything. But here, here's what I'll tell you. Don't allow the enemy to deceive you into thinking that your trauma is your future. That God can change your future by healing your trauma and change the patterns that have developed over your life. And just because the enemy did something in the past, that does not mean it was God's will. Actually, it was against God's will. And the enemy got a foothold, but Jesus came to break down every single stronghold of the enemy, not just on the macro level, but in your personal life to bring healing, not just of your sins, but healing of your soul, healing of sexual trauma, healing of physical abuse, healing of relational abuse, all the healing. He wants to heal us, but he can only heal us if we open up our lives and let him in. And so as we unpack this Real quick, there's a couple of stages, I think. This came from Dr. Kendall. A couple of stages of adultery from lust. Because adultery doesn't just happen. It grows from a seed of lust. Most of this room don't wake up and say, well, you know, I think I'm going to have a, an affair today. No, no one wakes up and says, I want to I break up my marriage of 30 years. No one wakes up and says, you know what, I just feel like I'm, today's the day. No, it starts with a seed of lust or pain or trauma from the past. That if it's not uprooted, it begins to produce. And this is what Jesus says in Mark. And this is the principle of the kingdom of heaven. In Mark chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus also said, In the kingdom of God, everybody say kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows. But he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First a leaf Blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. This is not a name it, claim it, prosperity principle of if you sow this gift of $100, you're going to get $1,000 coming back in returns. This principle is a kingdom principle that if you sow things in sin, you're going to reap things that have sin in them. If you sow things in faith, you're going to reap things that produce the fruit of faith. It's a principle of seed, blade, wheat, fruit, harvest. Seed, the blade pushes through. Then as the blade pushes through, the wheat begins to form of head. Then it becomes full fruit. It ripens, and then harvest comes. Our problem in our culture is we don't want to deal with any problems until the harvest time comes. In our marriages, we don't want to deal with the problems till the divorce attorney's involved. In our lives, we don't want to deal with our sin until the consequences come of our sins. We are people. We don't like to deal with the weeds. We just want to get rid of the harvest. And I'm here to tell you, once the harvest comes, it comes. But there's a principle of if you can get to the seed early and uproot the seed, you can change the harvest by replanting another seed. And so these five stages, I think, are, are extremely important. One is this. 
Stage one is normal attraction. So normal attraction is God created us in his image. He created us when in the Garden of Eden. He talked to Adam and Eve. He said, look at this. It's good. It's good. It's good. He created Eve. Adam said, it's good. He created us to appreciate the beauty of each other and the opposite sex. Like we're created in that Imago day where I appreciate that. And so there's normal attraction. I remember years ago, he's like my, my little brother. He's a worship leader. He was single at the time. And we're having lunch. And over lunch, he said, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying, I've been trying to pray. Like, I don't know how to pray. Like, God, help me with my lust. Because he's like a 23, 24-year-old worship leader. He's like, help me with my lust. But at the same time, don't deliver me from it. And I was like, what? I was like, hold up. I know worship leaders are stupid, but man, what, what is, what kind of theology is that? He says, no, like it's the, the attraction is what draws you to the sex to get married. And so what he's saying is there's a difference between lust and attraction. Like attraction, normal attraction, which you could say, that's a beautiful woman or that's a, that's a handsome man. And, and so our principle in our household, when it comes to normal attraction, if, if I see somebody who's pretty, I'll say that, hey, that's a pretty woman, or that's a pretty lady. Toya will say, he's handsome. Now, I don't say, man, she was hot, Toya. Did you see that girl? She was smoking hot. No, that's disrespectful. It's, she's, that's a pretty woman. That's beautiful. And what that does is it gets that normal attraction and gets it out of my mind. All right? So when you appreciate the beauty, it gets it out of your mind because stage two is when it becomes a temptation. And that is a spiritual temptation. That's when you take a normal attraction and that seed that the enemy threw out in front of you, you take that seed and you plant it in the ground of your mind. So now you've planted it. Now you ruminate over it. Now you think about it. Now you start to think about the what ifs. And so temptation, attraction is not a sin. Temptation is not necessarily a sin. What you choose to do with that temptation could be. So with that temptation, all temptation has two outcomes. If I'm tempted with something, it can either move me closer to Jesus because in my weakness, I'm made strong. His grace is sufficient in my time of need. So if I'm tempted and I realize, man, this is, this is hard, it moves me closer to Jesus or it moves me farther away from Jesus to pursue that which I'm tempted by. So when it comes to temptation, you have to know that as soon as that temptation comes to your mind, I can either let this seed be planted in my soul or I can take it and throw it out. And what you choose to do determines everything. That means when you see an image on your phone, if you choose to, to stay on that image or you get that image out. If you're flipping through the TV and you see something on TV, you linger for a minute or you turn it off. See, the temptation is to dwell on that which Satan is placing in front of you. And when Satan places something in front of you, it's impossible to see Jesus. So I can either remove that which he's tempting me with to see Jesus, or I can keep it in front of me where all I see is what I really want and desire. And when I say that, this is what temptation says. When you choose it, you're saying, what Satan has put in front of me, I desire and long for more than the love and presence of Jesus. And the choice that we have, we, we either make it or we break it through that choice. Stage three, though, is when it becomes lustful obsession. So the first two stages are not necessarily sin. The third one is that's when a, a persistent idea dominates your thought life. 
When you start thinking the what ifs, what if that, or what if this, or what, and you start ruminating and fantasizing about that which the enemy tempted you with. And so now it's not just a seed, now it's starting to push a little blade up into your mind where it's always there. Whether it's, it's a guy where you're thinking about the what ifs with somebody of sex or a woman because you watch all these stupid Hallmark movies and you wish your man was like that man and there is no man like that man because that man is just a woman wearing guy's clothes. <laughs> or, the, or the romance novels. Or, to, to take it real, like a couple years ago when there was trends of even Christian women reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Or reading these books that were just designed to stimulate lustful obsession. And so men tend to to fantasize more sensually. Women tend to fantasize more romantically. Both are a lustful obsession or a sensual desire for something that's away from the presence of God. And so when it begins to ruminate and, and you dwell on it, it says, this is 2 Peter 2, it says, with eyes full of adultery... They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Meaning your eyes become full of that which the enemy placed in front of you. You obsess over it. You think about it. You dwell on it. You sit in it. You think, you think, you think, you live in it. It becomes an occupying thought because it's taken root in your heart. Stage four, which D.A. Carson and Michael Eaton, who are great Greek translators, they said this is another option based on the Greek. A stage four is causing other people to lust. So they're saying when Jesus was speaking this, he says, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. They're saying what he also could have said is if you're wanting other people to lust after you, you've already committed adultery. And I, I think this one may be kind of higher up on the platform for a lot of us because of the day of social media and the image and wanting likes and affirmation from people of the opposite sex through social media. That I may not have an affair, but I really want them to affirm me in my personal image. I want them to affirm my sexuality. I want them to affirm me. It makes me feel good when they like me. So I'll wear my dress a little low cut, or if a guy, I'll, I'll, I'll take my shirt off. We've been talking to RJ about this. I'm like, dude, you don't have any muscles. Like, put a shirt on. We went to eat yesterday, didn't have a shirt on. I'm like, dude, like, you can't do that. Right? But what it is, is people, we want people to affirm us. And at some point, that affirmation turns into a desire for people to want us. And when you start living your life wanting people to want you instead of the God in you, that's when it becomes sinful. And then stage five is full-blown-out sexual adultery. And I've heard people say, well, I've had situations in marriages where they said, well, wait, I caught my husband watching porn, and, you know, that's adultery. I'm going to divorce him. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus was saying. I know it hurts. We can walk through that. And so people will say, well, it's the same thing. They're both. Jesus says they're the same. Lust in your heart and adultery are the same thing in sinfulness. But the consequences of the two are dramatically different. It is much easier to heal a marriage that's dealing with lust than it is a marriage dealing with adultery. Because once adultery happens, you've broken the confines of trust in a marriage. You've broken the trust of the kids and how they see mommy and daddy. You've broken the trust. You've broken the the walls of covenant. You've broken all these things down, and it begins to destroy the marriage from every single angle. 
And so if those are the five stages, the question would be this. I heard Craig Gochelle say, why battle a temptation in the future that you have the power to eliminate today? Like if, if the, state, the process of the growth of the seed leads into adultery, it leads into sin, why would I, I play around with the temptation that could cause harm in the future that I can uproot today? Meaning, if it's going to produce this harvest or this fruit in the future, why don't I just pluck the weed out when it's small instead of it getting big? Meaning, we have to kill sin before it kills us. This is what Jesus was saying. He's saying, if your right hand or your right eye calls you to sin, cut it out. He's saying, kill it before it kills you. Remove whatever's causing you to be tempted. Remove it out of your life so that way you can focus on me and the kingdom of heaven. But we are people, we do not take sin seriously enough. If we were all honest, if we're all honest, we don't really even take sin serious at all. What we take serious is when we get caught, the consequences that come from our sin. Another way to say it is I think we actually like the seeds of sin in our life. We just don't like the fruit of sin in our lives. And so we won't come to Jesus for the seed. We won't come to Jesus for the blade. We won't come to him for the head of of the wheat. But once it's harvest time, then we come. Like we won't come to, to Jesus when we're dealing with issues like this, but we'll come to Jesus when our marriage is falling apart because of this. We won't come to Jesus where we're dealing with sins of, of greed or sinfulness or selfishness, but once it manifests, then we're like, oh, now I need Jesus. Could you imagine Jesus, this loving father, who sees us dealing with all this junk. And he's like, I can help you. I can help you. I can help you. I want to heal those wounds. I want you to find fulfillment in me. I want to satisfy every longing you have. I want to satisfy you in your marriage. I want, and he said, I want to do it. But we're so closed off until finally it all hits the fan. You're exposed your marriage is exposed. Your kids see things they shouldn't see. Your friends see things they shouldn't see. Now your life is falling apart. Trust is all broken. And then you're like, Jesus, I need you. God would much rather pull you out of the shallow end than the deep end. And we have the choice to make in this. And so just real quick today, I want to give you just these, these eight things to help you overcome lust and pornography. Eight quick things, and if you read Proverbs 5, which I think is the greatest chapter in the Bible on dealing with these things. It's it's King Solomon who dealt with his own stuff, writes a letter to his son. He's telling him, listen, watch out for these adulterous women. You could put in there adulterous men. Watch out. He says, beware. Then he tells him what to watch out for. Then he tells him, but delight in your wife or delight in your spouse. Because there's a cost to pay for this sexual sin. It's an incredible scripture. But one is this. If you're going to overcome lust and porn and pursue sexual purity, number one is this. Count the cost of sexual impurity. Before you even get into the the, the temptation, count the cost. If I begin this journey, where does this journey end? And I promise you, that little step alone solves 90%. There is no temptation that you'll choose to sin that leads to a good place. 
Count the cost. If I do this, what's it going to do to my wife? If I do this, what's it going to do to my husband? If I do this, what's it going to do? One of the greatest pieces of advice anybody ever gave me. This old hippie named John Barry, who was a great mentor to me. He says, don't go anywhere or do anything you wouldn't take your kids to. And I've tried to live like that. I'm not going to a bar. I'm not going to a nightclub. I'm not, go- I'm not drinking. I'm not doing this. Because if I can't take my kids there and let them watch me do it, I probably shouldn't be doing it. And so you count the cost. And you think we talked about Samson last week. Samson was this great man of God, powerful, destroying the Philistines, walking out his purpose, doing all these incredible things. But he fell in love with Delilah. His weakness was women. And he sees Delilah and he wants Delilah. And Delilah begins to manipulate him because sin always goes further than you want it to go. Manipulates him, says, where's your strength coming from? She tells him. And he tells her, and he's like, what's from my hair? So she cuts off his hair while he's asleep. He gets locked up. He's lost his strength. And at the end of the story, here is Samson with his locks cut off and his eyes gouged out. All because he was so full of lust, he lost everything. And so my question to to ministers that I've talked to that have dealt with this, if you were, if Samson and Delilah were here, and Samson was sitting, if I could bring Samson and sit him in a chair right here and say, Samson, preach the message you want to preach the chapel. He'd be preaching in a chair with his head shaved, with his eyes gouged out, and I promise you he would say this, it was not worth it. Could you imagine, Samson, was it worth it? Was Delilah worth losing your hair, losing your anointing, losing your eyesight? Was it worth losing your life? Was it worth losing everything? And I guarantee you, he would say no. But if I brought other people up, I'd say, was it worth watching a little bit of inappropriate material to lose your wife and to watch her cry and sob because she feels insecure now every time she sees you? Was it worth it for just a few moments of pleasure to see your kids now look at daddy in a different light? I promise you, nobody would say it was worth it. But the only way you get to that point is before it happens, you count the cost of sexual impurity. Of all sins, sexual sin is the only one where it's a sin against yourself. But two, if you're starting to walk that direction, confess your sin to God. It is, it is sin. There's no other word for it. It is sin. It is completely against God's will. It's against God's character. It's against his nature. It is sin. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he says, if we confess, which means if I get it out in the open. See, so many times I think with sexual stuff and lust, we try to hide it because we're ashamed of it. And in doing so, we keep it in the dark rather than getting it out. All confession does is bring it to Jesus. He already knows He's just wanting us to acknowledge it so he can finally touch us and heal us. That's what if you confess your sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive you and heal you of it. And I think the more specific you are in your confession of sin, the more specific God is in his healing of your sin. And so we're so generic. Well, God just, you know, just forgive me. I'm sure I messed up yesterday. Forgive me. No, tell him, God, forgive me. When that slid through my timeline and I lingered a little bit too much, Father, I know that was objectifying women. God, I know that was self-gratifying. I know that's against your nature. God, help me. I'm, I forgive me of that. Cleanse me of that. 
And what it does, it brings you closer to Jesus rather than farther away from him. Number three would be share your struggles and weaknesses with the right people. Meaning you need to share. Somebody should know what you struggle with. It may not be able to be your spouse or your wife or your husband, but somebody should know that you have some blind spots in your life. Somebody should know you have some weak areas in your life. Somebody should know there's some gates open in your life so they can help you watch yourself. You cannot trust your own heart. Your heart will lie to you. It says this in Galatians. Or James 5, it says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So I gotta confess it to God, but then you confess it to somebody else. I need to share that with somebody else. And I think what's, what's crazy is we actually believe that our hearts will lead us in the right direction. Your heart is what led you into temptation to begin with. So if your heart leads you into temptation, your heart can't lead you out of temptation. Like, I don't trust my own heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Yes, we get a new heart in Jesus, but our heart has all these traumas, these wounds, these lies that it believes. And so if you trust your own heart, you know how many people that I've seen get a divorce, and the reason they get divorced is because their heart was telling them they're in love with somebody else? Like, God is not going to lead you to fall in love with somebody else if you're already married. I've had people at the altar tell me the same thing. Like, just pray, like, for my new husband. Well, I'm not divorced yet. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you want me to pray to God to bless your new marriage while you're still married? No, your heart is lying to you, sweetheart. Your heart is lying to you. And I think when you see the story of David and him falling, here's how you get into a situation like King David. Yes, there was lust involved. But David was supposed to be at war, and he stayed back. And the reason he stayed back is because David started thinking he was entitled to enjoy the rewards of his hard work. And many people that I see that begin, especially ministry, pastors, leaders, they think they deserve a break from the norm to experience something new. And what that tells me is their heart is lied to them. Oh, man, you're a great pastor. Man, you work so hard. You've done so much for God. You know, God's a gracious God. If you just do this, God will forgive you because you've done so much good for him. No, that's entitlement. Your heart is lying to you. And so the only way you can decipher a lying heart is to have other people that can help you decipher your lying heart. Men and women that can tell you, you are messed up right now. Like, you think this is what God is saying to you? You are messed. That is not God. That is Satan. And I can tell you how you know the difference. When it only pleases you, it's Satan. When it only pleases God and others, it's God. Number four, pursue accountability in your life to rebuild sexually pure boundaries. Meaning you have to pursue accountability. Accountability will not pursue you. We, we talk about this in our staff all the time. Like if people just get the fact that the body of believers, the community is designed to be a blessing to protect you and bless you. But it doesn't pursue you, you have to pursue it. In Galatians 5, it says, if your brother's caught in sin, step up, help him, share the burden with him, and help him bring him back into a place of good standing. I mean, that's accountability. What does that mean? You saw all the, the figures. If, if there's things that are tempting you, you need accountability to prevent you from walking back into the temptation. And all accountability is, is obstacles to prevent you from getting back to a place of temptation. But you can't expect it to pursue you. You have to pursue it, meaning you have to have people that you can go to and say, listen, I need help in this area. 
What should I do? There's software for your computers. There's things you do with your TV. There's people that should have access to everything. Toy has access to everything I have. Social media accounts, email, bank accounts, everything. There's other men I have relationships with that have access to everything. If somebody was to say, well, you're doing this, I'm an open book. So what that does is, one, no one can accuse me of anything. It helps me live above reproach. But two, it makes, reminds me, if I'm tempted, I will get caught. And many of y'all need that. When you're tempted, if you know you'll get caught, I promise you, you probably won't do it. And accountability of man is just a reminder that we're accountable to God. That God never closes his eyes. He never takes a nap. He's always watching. He's seen you in every sin you've ever committed. And human accountability is just a reminder that God is always with me. And it helps you live a life to please him instead of pleasing yourself. Then five, avoid temptation and beware of your triggers. Second Timothy 2.22 says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Meaning you need to avoid temptation. It is not spiritually strong to see how close you can get to temptation and, and survive it. Spiritual maturity is not saying, you know, well, I'm strong enough. I've heard people say, well, I'm strong enough. I'm going to go to the bar and evangelize. No, you're going to get drunk. Well, I'm going to go to the strip club and I'm going to evangelize. No, you're not. Like people think that it's, I, I can show how strong I am by getting so close to sin but not sinning. No, spiritual maturity is not even going to the temptation because you remove the temptations so you can focus on building the kingdom instead of fighting off temptations. And so like Craig Rochelle said earlier, why play with the temptation now that you can get rid of that can cause you pain in the future when you can uproot that joker now and get rid of it? That's what Jesus is saying. He said, if, if it's your arm, cut it off. If it's your eye, cut it off. If it's your TV, cut it off. If it's your phone, cut it off. Get a flip phone. Get whatever you need. There's all types of whatever your triggers are. If you travel and you go to the hotel room and you're by yourself, don't turn the TV on. Call your spouse. I know men of God that as soon as they get in, the, TV, in the, the hotel room, they FaceTime their wives through the night so they're never alone to be tempted. Whatever your trigger is, identify. If it's stress, when I'm stressed, I need a release. I need something. Recognize your triggers and build walls around them so you don't stumble and fall. And number six, delight in your spouse. In Proverbs 5, 18, it says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your, of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Like I said, God is a, got a blessing. He gives us marriages to share life together, to strengthen one another, to be accountability for one another, but also to, to enjoy one another. And, and one of the sad things, I think, in that scripture, in Proverbs, you can read Song of Solomon. There's these amazing, he says in here, intoxicated with her love. How could you be intoxicated with your wife if you're intoxicated with everything you see on TV? How could you be intoxicated with your wife when you're, you're intoxicated by every image that flies across your, I can't be intoxicated. You only be intoxicated by one thing at one time. And what I'm, I'm grieved by is the word. We talked about it a little bit in pre-service prayer is that in order to compete with the sexuality of the world, we've been trying to sexualize our marriages to a place they don't belong. Like God gave us sex as a way to make love to one another, and it can only be love if it's under the confines of God who is love. If God is in it, then it's love. If God's not, then it's just pleasure. And pleasure wanes, but love endures forever. 
And so some of you need to find that romance in your life again to delight in your spouse or delight in your husband. To begin to love one another and delight in them. And I'll say this, your spouse is your standard of beauty. What that means is, you know, we all age. I've, I've joked, you know, women age like fine wine, men age like spoiled milk. I know. But your spouse is your standard of beauty. If your spouse is 60, your standard of beauty is 60-year-olds. If your spouse has dark hair, your standard of beauty is dark hair. If your spouse is thin, it's thin. If your spouse is heavier, then it's heavy. Like your spouse is the high watermark. Everything else falls into place under that. Like Toy is my high watermark. But what happens is when you begin sexualizing your mind, you create other high watermarks and your spouse is down here. Now you're starting to get your spouse to rise up. Now you're manipulating and controlling your wife to fit an image you saw on TV. That's called witchcraft. When you're trying to personally change somebody to fit what you desire and want, that's evil. And so your wife has to be your standard of beauty. And last but not least, two more. If you need it, seek professional help before you get caught. Don't seek it after you get caught. Conviction gets you to confess before you get caught. Guilt gets you to confess after you get caught. If you need help, there is tons of resources we're going to share with you. Get help. Seek somebody to help you. And finally, let God heal your wounds, your trauma, and your loneliness. That if it's loneliness that's driving you, if it's control issues that's driving you, if it's trauma that's driving you, God is the healer. And he can heal you. Yes, he can use counselors and therapists and prayer and people, but he wants to heal you. God doesn't want you walking around full of trauma and abuse that's manifesting through lust and pornography, adultery, and sexual sin. He wants to forgive you of your sin, but uproot what's causing it. And he can only do it when you take it to him and place it in his hands. And so before we leave today, if you look at the screen, we, we created a document that has tons of resources. Because I know this is not a, a message that says, you know, I just want to go to the altar so everybody knows what I'm dealing with. I know that's not the case. We knew that you probably didn't want to text in a number and maybe somebody knows that you said something. So this is on our website under the ministries page, but you can also do the QR code. Even if it's not for you, you need this document for people around you. It's in the Church Center app under the Discipleship tab. It's, it's you know, resources to overcome lust and porn is what it's called. There's a resource in here for men, for women, for spouses who have husbands or wives who are dealing with it, you feel betrayed and broken. There's resource in for sexual trauma. There's a free course from John Bevere that is for everybody here and anybody else you want to share it with. There's resources for anonymous phone call therapy that if you want to call these numbers, it's anonymous. There are ministries that will help you tremendously. Like this is us saying this is this important to us. Like Jesus preached on this, on the Sermon on the Mount, his high peak of teaching. And I think if it, was, if it was relevant then, it is 10 times more relevant today. Sexual trauma, porn, lust, everything is in this document. And I promise you, if you take a step towards the light, God will bring healing to wherever you step into. So for some of you, it's going to be a small step. For some of you, it may be a big step. But I recommend everybody getting this document and checking out these resources because my prayer for you, and this is what we prayed about this morning, my prayer for you is to take a step out of the darkness and hiding and shame and guilt and trauma to take a step towards Jesus, the healer, 
redeemer and deliverer of your soul. So that way we have a church full of healthy people, so we can have healthy marriages, so we can have a healthy family, we can have healthy kids, and we can break down these patterns that are developing in culture by building a stronghold of, of purity in the church. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a quick second. Father, I know this is a, a tough topic. Father, I know it may, for some people, it may have been frustrating. It may have been, you know, inappropriate or anything like that, Father. But we know that this is a message you preached to your people 2,000 years ago. And at that time, Father, they had to look for it. But today, Father, we know it's looking for us. And I've seen way too many men of God, even women of God, get taken down by the enemy through seeds of lust. And I pray right now in this room, Father, everyone that sees those seeds in our life, Father, they'll begin to confess it, to uproot those seeds out of their hearts, out of their minds, out of the soil, to uproot it so it never produces the fruit the enemy intended for it to produce. So, Father, I pray for these resources that you've, you've given through the body of Christ, Father, through the, the free online course with John Bevere, Father. I pray it sets people free. Father, from the counselors and therapy, I pray it sets people free. Father, from the resources, the articles, and all the books on this resource, Father, for women, for spouses, for men. Father, I pray it's the beginning of deliverance, Father, especially right now for those who've experienced sexual trauma, sexual abuse, sexual molestation. Father, I pray that does not have to be the continual pattern in their lives. I pray that you step into their darkness and you become their healer, their deliverer, and their redeemer. I pray that you redeem that which the enemy meant for evil. You redeem it for good, for healing, for a change in the generational pattern, the generational tree, and to bring deliverance to others through the stories of grace and the stories of power and glory that you grant. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.